Hi, I'm Matt Sorensen, CMO at Clearbit. And I'm Alex McCaw, CEO of Clearbit. And you're listening to the Manager's Handbook Podcast. Here at Clearbit, we've been writing a book on management as part of our internal training program with a goal of developing world-class managers. The handbook brings together what's worked for us over the past five years and everything we've learned from our failures. Each month, we'll be releasing a new episode of the pod along with a written chapter of the handbook. You can find this all at themanagershandbook.com. All right. Today is chapter one, all about managing yourself. And I'm here with Alex McCaw, our CEO. Alex, give us a little intro. Thanks, Matt. So I'm Alex. I'm CEO of Clearbit. And to give you some context, we are a marketing tech company based in San Francisco. We're about 100 people at this point, five years in. And over the last five years, we've learned a hell of a lot about management. So management is extremely close to my heart. I think great management can change lives and it can really help people with their careers. And so given that, we've decided to invest a lot in management. Part of that has been writing this handbook. We decided to open source this handbook and talk about how we do management at Clibit with the hope that it helps inspire others. Awesome. And to back up a bit from my side, I've been here uh, since almost day one, a few months in, and watched both Alex and our company kind of grow from a very small IC-focused startup to now this 100-plus person company where management is one of the most important things we have and one of our biggest competitive differentiators. So Alex, why such a focus on management? Isn't that something that companies tend to put more energy into later on? Well, to understand that, I think it's useful to understand a little bit of context about myself. So I'm a software engineer, and like a lot of software engineers, typically I preferred chatting to computers rather than humans. And so for the first couple of years of Clearbit, I was just programming away in the corner and trying not to interact with too many people. As you can imagine, this is not a great trait for a CEO. And so ultimately I decided, okay, I've got to give up the programming. At that point, I gave it up, and honestly, I got pretty depressed. I didn't know uh, what to do. I didn't really have much love for the rest of the company building aspect of it. And I didn't really know if I wanted to be CEO. And around this time, I got a coach, this guy called Matt Mashari. Well, I want to stop you there. Yeah. Tell me more about like what, what was changing where you were becoming unhappy or depressed. Well, I just had nothing to fill a void in, you know, I... And previously you'd been programming and engineering. Yeah, the, the thing about programming is that every single day you can contribute to the company. Every hour of every day, you just write more code. So I had nothing to fill the void. And you know, management and company building is, in, in some respects, a lot harder than engineering, at least when it comes to prioritization. It's hard, it's, there's so many things to work on. It's hard to know which one you should be spending your time on. And if you don't have an experience manage, managing people, uh, then it's, it's really tough to, to know where to start. I'm going to take a half step back here. So we're writing this management handbook for Clearbit. But I guess why, why do you think it's as important as it is to make this public for other companies as well? I just don't think there are enough good resources out there. Don't get me wrong, there are a ton of incredible resources out there they're just not in one place 
They're not, they're not curated together. The management handbook doesn't contain a lot of new ideas. Most of the ideas in it we have brought in from all sorts of places sure. and collected it into one spot. But the fact that we create, curated this thing and then actually tested it with our team, I think, is is important. And then why why distribute it? Well, I think a lot of people are just not very happy and fulfilled at work. And my hypothesis is that this is because of their manager. Mm-hmm. It's not because of any particular function. Right. It's your management and your manager has such an impact on whether you look forward to Mondays or not. And they have a, such a huge impact over your entire career trajectory. And when we realized this, we thought, let's try and create the best managers at Clearbit. You know, mo- most companies don't even bother training their managers. They just promote ICs. And we thought, let's try and create the best managers. So how do we do that? Well, through training. And then let's try and t- turn each of these managers into coaches and the, the kind of incredible coaches that I had when I was building this company. So let's jump right into that. With coaching, at Clearbit, we've invested in coaching across the entire company, but that kind of started two years ago, with this guy named Matt Mashari. How did we end up there? Well, what I had done, which was uh, lucky, but at the time, it probably didn't realize quite how important it was, was that I'd set up this leadership team and this team was a close-knit group of people who had essentially started the company together. And in this place, in the space, I felt like I could be vulnerable. I felt like I could give and receive feedback and I didn't have to have you know, an inch-thick armor that I felt like I had to have with the rest of the company. So I had this space and then I started getting feedback. And one of the pieces of feedback was from Luke Whiting, our COO at the time. And he said, Alex, I think you really need a coach. And at the time, I thought he was crazy. I, I thought the company was doing very well, at least financially. And there, uh, therefore, I was doing a good job. And so why would I need coaching? Uh, it's like, at the time, I also thought the same with therapy. Like, why would you see a therapist if you were happy? It was, it was the same kind of deal. So once you got that feedback, how did you go about uh, finding a coach? I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I think the same way that you find anyone, you just ask your network. So I asked Naval Ravikant from AngelList, and he said to me, Alex, I have the best coach I've ever seen. And it just so happens that he has a bit of time in between uh, now and when he starts working at Coinbase and he introduced me to Matt Mishari, and Matt came around the office and just worked with me every day, and he was in all my meetings, all my one-on-ones, and he just taught me everything he knew. And Matt has actually written a whole book about this uh, called The Great CEO Within, and I had read this book before meeting Matt, and that's ultimately what convinced me to work with him. So just to set the scene here, what did the company look like at that stage? How many people? How big was the leadership team? How, how did reporting work, et cetera? It was about 25 people at the time. The leadership team, it's about six of us. Other than that, it was a fairly flat hierarchy. And I think we were about two to $3 million in revenue, maybe a bit more than that. And so what was, what was breaking down at that point? Or like maybe, maybe things hadn't broken down, but what, what felt like it needed to change? 
I think it was more of a preemptive strike than anything else. Yeah. I think it seemed clear that we want we wanted a scale, right? And you know, and we 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 did we, you know, three or four years later, or less than that, we were at about a hundred people. So we wanted to put the right foundations in place for that scale. So there was a bit of a it was a bit of preemptiveness, or well, uh, though I'm not probably not self aware enough to know exactly how people felt about me at the time. And, and I'm <laughs> sure there's lots awesome. I could have improved. I remember Mashari, Matt Mashari coming in and that being a pretty massive change in our day-to-day -day workflows. He spent a lot of time with, with you, obviously, and then with the entire leadership team and all these one-on-ones, all of our meetings, all of our like sub-department meetings, and taught us things about one-on-ones, about process, about how to run these meetings that were, at the time, it felt like a lot of extra weight. That's what I remember as well. I remember I was sold, but the initial knee-jerk reaction from the leadership team was, whoa, this is way too much process, <laughs> and this is not going to help us. And for me, that felt true for probably about six weeks. But then I remember flying back from Spain, actually, and I'd been pretty much offline for four or five days, and I jumped into Asana where we keep track of everything. I was able to read through my entire team's updates and the whole company and like everything that had happened in those five days. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was up to speed in like half an hour. I'm like, this makes sense. Right. right. So this this process actually is freeing, honestly. And so we're going to talk about this in the book. We're going to when I go through the Mashari method, a lot of it has been inspired by Matt. And then a lot of it has come from our learnings over the last few years. So that's what's going to be in the latter part of the book. Can you give our listeners an overview of what's going to be included in the handbook and how they're how we're going to release it over the next months? So the handbook is nine chapters, and each chapter delves into a particular area of management. The first chapter is all about managing yourself, and that's the first one. Okay, so managing yourself. What does that mean? Why did, why did we include this? I think it's very difficult to manage other people before you effectively managed yourself. I think you have to be in a good emotional place, emotionally mature. I think you have to be a good example, especially around getting things done. I think you have to learn how to manage your time. As they say in planes, I think you should fix your own mask before you help others. <laughs> Fair enough. So you mentioned managing time. That's super important at Clearbit and something we train every, not just manager, but employee on. Tell me about that. Your time is your most limited resource. And we live in this world of abundance, but there's only so much time. And what I find is that you ask someone, what are your priorities? And they'll list them out. And then you'll look at their calendar and they're not in there. And so I, people just tend to let the tail wag the dog. They let other people create calendar events and they don't proactively manage their time. I think that's something that people absolutely fall into that trap as the company grows as well, because everyone wants time, everyone needs information, um, and meetings are kind of the default way to do that. People will ask meetings from you all the time. You just have to be ruthless about saying no. One hard rule I have is that nobody can create a meeting on my calendar without, me ask, without my permission. So how do you maintain that with your direct reports that need information from you while being kind and not being like, nope, that's not worth my time? I think you just default to writing. And you you can get a lot done by just sharing a document. People can work on it asynchronously. 
I think the most interesting thing about defaulting to writing and trying to make decisions that way is we actually you actually encourage or force people to put them put their thoughts together in a linear and um, logical way, uh, and often that conversation can be so much faster once it's been written down. That's right, because it's a lot more efficient. And so, for example, with issue resolution, and we're going to get into that uh, later in the book, we default to writing. Another thing that I see here in the first chapter is GTD, or getting things done. It's a pretty commonly loved methodology in tech land. We hear a lot about it. What does it mean at Clearbit, and what does it mean to you? So it is common, but I actually surveyed our entire company about it, and only about a third of the company knew what it was, and only about half the company used a task manager. When you say task manager, you mean like we have our internal task management where we use Asana for all of that. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? So at Clearbit, we generally have, use Asana for any commitments between two people. So if, if there's a promise or a commitment between two people, it gets written down in Asana. It has a, a owner, a due date, and a good description. For tasks that involve yourself, you can use whatever tool you want. And I personally use the Things app because it's really lightweight. You can create tasks quickly but you can use whatever you want, as long as you use something. Like our, our brains are made for having ideas, not holding them. And you, you cannot be free uh, unless you write down all the things in your mind that you have to do and stick them down. Uh, otherwise, you'll just feel anxiety and you'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things you have to do. This sounds personal. Was this something that uh, you experienced? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess for, this one came fairly naturally to me. I think I've used a task manager for a long time. I, I just personally think everyone should use them. I, I, th I think it's very hard to prioritize your life and get the things done that you want to get done over, the, over your life unless, unless you write them down. We hit on task management and how to make sure you uh, write everything down that you need to do. What are, the, what are the other parts of GTD or getting things done that we train at Clearbit? Well, we take people through the entire process. So GTD is first about capturing everything. All of your ideas, all of your tasks, you want to capture everything so you don't have to think about it again until it's time to do it. And then it's about organizing it, prioritizing it, figuring out what you want to do today, what you want to do in the future, and then engage, get to work. And this is the part that a lot of people will mess up and this is because of a uh, synchronous communication. Things like incoming phone calls, email alerts, people interrupting them. These are all synchronous communication and, and they should be avoided if possible. Um, <laughs> you should batch synchronous communication and distractions and then, you, and then you should work on everything else asynchronously. So I suggest if you can make sure that you don't get email alerts, for example, only look at email once a day uh, or twice a day, and um, don't respond to these things synchronously. Discourage people DMing you on Slack, just so that you can really concentrate and work on your task list. So earlier we mentioned coaching. Do you have anyone else that helps you? Clearbit doesn't have a large board of directors. So how do you how do you get advice on what we should do as a company? Well, I have what I call an advisory board, and I actually ask that everyone on our leadership team has these. At Clearbit, we are rather unusual in that our leadership team doesn't have much experience. We have, we have added experience over the years, but the initial group of people had never managed anyone. 
And the, I think the only way that we were going to scale and get enough experience was to set up advisory boards. Everyone has an advisory board, people that they can call on to help. So what does that, what does that actually mean in practice? So I have an advisory board of about five CEOs and a couple of ex-CEOs. And I just email them all the time. These are CEOs that are a few years ahead of me. Uh, they've experienced a lot of the problems that we're experiencing. They can help. And they're just a great uh, sounding board for me to solve these, some of these problems. The rule of thumb uh, I've found is to be about 18 months to two years ahead of the person that is getting advised. Otherwise, if you go too far in the, in the future or too close to where you are right now, they might not have actually answers for you. You need that, like a little bit of perspective, but not so much they've forgotten about tactics. I mean, I know you have an advisory board that you've lent on. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, mine has changed a bit over the last couple of years, but I, I target having three three folks and I do a dinner once a quarter with each one of them and then try to uh, be engaging them at least once or twice a week with questions. And more and more I've found it is on the management side that I'm leaning on for help less than the tactical sides around marketing. So a common objection I always hear is why would anyone help me? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you assume that people want to help you. I think that's step one. Uh, start in a place where people want to help you. But I have found almost zero pushback. I had one person say no, it was because they were actively advising a company they thought might be competitive. But everyone I've asked to participate, I don't know, what's, what's your experience? That's exactly it. It's actually a motto in my life, ask for help. It's amazing how far that gets you. And people want to help. People want to be involved. And just remember, like you're a cool person. People are willing to help you. You're very cool, Matt. Oh, thanks, bud. <laughs> so exec coaching, advisory boards, that's all one thing. Let's talk about therapy and other types of like emotional coaching. You've been pretty public about this. And at Clearbit, we provide it free for everyone at the company. So the first thing to understand about me is that I'm British. And the British don't like talking about feelings. So I was uh, taught and I grew up believing that therapy was something you only sought if you were unhappy. Right. I'm Midwestern and it's very similar. <laughs> right. And being a largely happy person, I was like, well, I don't need a therapist. And then a lot happened when I was about 28. I had a, a year of massive change in my life. And I thought I knew myself. I thought I had a handle on myself at the start of that year. At the end of that year, I was like, I'm a totally different person. And so... If I was that wrong about myself, then there's probably more to find out. There's probably more digging to do. And a therapist is a great way of doing that. How has your therapy experience been to date? It's been fantastic. I, I've got a therapist who also has experience in the, in, in the business world as well. So she has helped me with personal stuff and she's helped me with company stuff. She's helped me understand myself better. She's helped me understand why I react in certain ways to certain things. And I think it's really helped me as a person, and I think it's made me nicer to work with as well. I think the most common objection we hear around uh, therapy, coaching, even things like physical exercise, is people saying, I don't have enough time. Like, my work is more important. My family life is more important. I don't have time for these things. What's your response to that? I say, bullshit. I think what they're really saying is, I think other things in my life are more important than that. I think if, if you were to write all those things out in a list and ask people to properly prioritize them, they would really look at it with the right context and say, actually, this is really important and I should do it. 
I think it comes back to taking, you know, putting the mask on for yourself first is if you are mentally healthy, physically healthy and have a support system, which is really what therapy and coaching are, you're better at all those other priorities. It's the point of leverage. And for, for me and my team, I know with coaching, I really push people to find it because I know it's the only way that they'll be able to continue to grow and scale at the speed we need them to. And so that's why we offer therapy to everyone at Clearbit. We use a service called Modern Health. And if people so choose, they can select a therapist. The company is not really associated with the therapist at all. And I think it's important to keep those things separate. Mm-hmm. People should feel um, very comfortable speaking to their therapist. But I, I, about half the company uses it and really loves it. So we've talked a little bit about emotions. Now we're going to dive off the deep end a little bit here into some of the controversial is the wrong word, but the less commonly seen topics in a management handbook. So let's talk about fear, Enneagrams, exploring the opposite. All of this can be kind of new agey and, you know, um, uh, conscious feeling. How do you how do you feel about that in part of like a management book that's really about increasing productivity? Yeah, well, let's get deep, Matt. You know, I wondered about this, about including this in the in the book, but I realized that if we didn't, it would be disingenuous because this is a core part of what makes Clibit work is really digging in to some of these topics that people often don't like thinking about. Topics like fear. So in fear and emotions, this for me has been one of the most impactful things in the last couple years is bringing my emotion to work and committing to expressing the emotion that I feel. Talk to me about fear and emotion at work. Well, so for the first part of my life, the last majority of it, I was of the opinion that emotions were not practical and should be suppressed. (laughs) Whether they're practical or not is another topic, but the thing is we have them. And it is much healthier to integrate them into our lives rather than trying to repress them. Right. Every time I have an emotion, expressing it is the way to like move past it and use it as energy, where repressing it is like slowing me down and taking energy away. And this doesn't mean like yelling at people or, or you know, just being unprofessional, but it, but it does mean expressing your emotions in a really methodical matter. So we actually have a whole framework for emotion expressing. Here are the boxes. This is where your emotions (laughs) fall. Look on the chart and you will know how to express. Oh, God. (laughs) There is a a way of framing these things such that you can express them and they they flow through you and, and are released in a healthy, productive manner. And that is expressing it in a way where it is about the emotion that you're feeling versus the person that may have caused that emotion. That's the key thing is to speak in unequivocal truths. One of the topics I have had the most fun talking about recently is Enneagrams. Um, and Enneagrams are a, a personality test. Uh, they can seem a little bit like corporate horoscope. How did, we, how did we find Enneagrams and what are they to you? So we found them through the Conscious Leadership Group. And that's something we're also going to be talking a lot about. There's a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. But their favorite tool for understanding yourself a little better is called the Enneagrams. And there are nine different Enneagrams, numbered one to nine. Nine is not better than one. Um, they're, they're all equally as valuable. But you essentially answer a series of questions and you'll learn about your predominant Enneagram and also your wings, like your lesser Enneagram. 
So I'm an Enneagram seven wing eight. You're an eight wing seven, I believe. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so the seven is the enthusiast. This is the fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, scattered. And then the eight is the challenger. So this is um, confident, decisive, willful, confrontational. That's the key thing, the confrontational. And you're a seven-wing eight, I'm an eight-wing seven, so we are... Inverse. Yeah, we're in- inverse. So what this means uh, in practice is that you, I think, are a little bit more fun-loving and maybe sometimes reckless. And I am a bit more confrontational and always looking for uh, danger, you know. And so uh, these these two Enneagram types, they interact in really interesting ways. I think one of the most interesting ways is between the two of us is your desire to create confrontation as a barrier to trust in some ways. It's like, I challenge you, and if you challenge me back, I, that generates trust. And for me, having any time my freedom feels like it's being limited, I have a very strong negative reaction to that. And this has been really interesting, figuring this out about ourselves. The confrontational way of doing things isn't always the most productive. I think I've, I actually find it very productive with my senior team because they understand me very well. Most of us have worked together for five years at this point. Um, so I will say something confrontational, maybe even just contradict someone and just to generate a good discussion, often forgetting that I'm CEO and sometimes that uh, doesn't go down so well. Yeah, that, that can be hard when you're the loudest voice in the room. But between you and me, it works pretty well. This was maybe two months ago, but we were in a bar talking about this new product launch we had when we launched this new product called X. And we were talking about the launch strategy and I was walking you through kind of drunkenly like the copy we were going to use. And you were like, no, 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 that sounds bad. And I was like, fuck you. Uh, But you're like, I get final approval on this copy. And I was like, fuck you. (laughs) And like the next day, you know, we sorted it out in really no time, but it was just a funny, very distinct example of that, of you being like. Yeah, it was me contradicting you, you feeling that your free will or freedom was being repressed and reacting to that. And the fact that we knew each other's Enneagram types and that this is a classic interaction between the two types really helped us figure it out. And it was ultimately very productive. Ultimately, the product and the launch got better because of the interaction. But the fact that we understood the dynamics behind the interaction, let, let it be a bit more positive. I mean, that night, 20 minutes later, we like, were laughing about that interaction because, right. because of that. So you mentioned the Conscious Leadership Group and the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Let's talk about that a bit. Well, the first commitment, I think one of the most important ones, is taking radical responsibility. So this means taking responsibility for everything in your life all your circumstances, you know, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and uh, just a short list. Just a short list, and and people, most people are like, sure, I I'm responsible in my life. I understand cause and effect. So what's not accurate about that, or what does it mean to take full responsibility? Well, I think what they miss out is that part of taking full responsibility is taking full responsibility for your emotions and. That meaning I take full responsibility of the anger that I have, of the the fear, the sadness, the joy, the things that we often ascribe to other people causing us. I mean, the truth is that no one can make you feel anything. If I'm yelling at you, I'm just you know, 
vibrating molecules towards you. <laughs> All of that is generated inside of you. And so really taking full responsibility for that. That's a, uh, a tough pill to swallow for people, you know. In, the, in today's world, people are outraged at all sorts of things. But really, they're outraged because they, they want to be outraged. They're angry because they want to be angry. It's really your choice. I think it can be, I think there's a, maybe an inverse of that as well, of like positions of privilege and power make it much simpler to say things like, I have total responsibility. That being said, it is a choice that we all make. And there, there's a framework we use at Clearbit called the To Me, By Me framework. And um, to me is really playing the victim. It's, it's like, I am a leaf in the wind. Other people are, are making me feel these ways. My circumstances are entirely due to the decisions of other people or random chance of fate in the world or whatever it is. I'm, I'm angry because it's raining, you know, that kind of thing. So that, that's the to me mind of view. And then the by me is I'm a creator in my world. You know, I get to choose my world and create it. I get to take full responsibility for everything in it. And I think it's a much healthier outlook to have. For me, I think objectively, we don't control everything. But having that sense of I can, can enact change on the world is huge. I mean, it's, it's clear that we don't control everything. There's a lot of random chance. And just the way that we met, for example, was, was very random. I think you just have to embrace the randomness, and then be a creator in some of the things that you can influence. So once you've taken full responsibility, what are some of the other more emotional pieces of this management handbook? Well, I'd love to talk about facing fear. Fear is a really interesting topic. So our brain experiences fear in the same way, regardless of how it's caused. But there's not much nuance to, our, to the way we feel fear. Now, fear is generated in an ancient part of the brain, we call it the lizard brain, and it generates a fight or flight response. And as soon as we start feeling fear, we go into that defensive or that aggressive mode, which doesn't include higher level thinking. And so the key thing to understand is that fear can be triggered by th fear of uh, mortal death, fear of threats to your physical self, and also fear of threats to your ego. And the reason behind this is simple. Let's just say we were, uh, you know, it was 500 years ago, we were having an argument. One of us might kill each other. And these days, that's not going to happen. If your manager gives you critical feedback, you know, your life is not in danger, but your, your brain still thinks it is. And that's why you feel that, that knot of fear inside yourself when you get that feedback. And even socially, like we're social, social creatures as humans and fear of shame is a huge part of what drives, drives our fears or like shame and like. Right. And that, and that comes back from being excluded, you know, not being allowed to sit next to the campfire and at the mercy of the wolves, right? These days it's just less relevant, but the brain, the brain still thinks they're the same thing. So the, the key thing is when you feel fear, you have to first be able to name it really say, oh, I feel fear. So is this a, do you have like a framework for handling fear? For me, it's just really getting in touch with your body and where you feel emotions. You know, you actually feel emotions around your body, which is fascinating. And so when, when I feel that tightness in my chest, I'm like, oh, 
I feel fear. And you, you'll notice kids are great at this. They're like, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm scared, right? But as adults, we lose the ability to, to, na to name these emotions. So once you've named it, then you have to really dig into it. Is this a threat to my ego? Is this a threat to my mortal self? You know, fear is useful in the fact that it's like your body saying or your, your brain saying, hey, there's something over here that you should probably pay attention to. But after that, that's when you get into trouble. If you, if you really focus on that fear, you can get into this downward spiral. I think in a work context, anything we're afraid of, like if you really dig into that, is not something, it's, it's not something worth being truly afraid of. It's either I can take an action on this or I can't. It's honestly not no big deal if Clever honestly goes bankrupt. No one's going to die. You know, we'll find other jobs. Just remember, we're selling pixels to people that sell pixels. Yeah, it's, it's honestly nothing matters. <laughs> so, yeah, the, a lot of the fear we have is, is, is misplaced, or at least it is, it is useful in the fact that we want to look at that thing and, and resolve it. We don't want to just be ambivalent about it. But, but if, we, if we start letting ourselves being driven by that fear, making decisions based out of that fear, that's, that's when we start making mistakes. I think a really useful loop for me has been anytime I feel frustration or anger to label that as fear. Because for me, all anger really comes from a fear of something. And that's been just huge for like even tiny frustrations with someone at work or something that happened. If I label that as fear, I'm immediately like, oh, that's stupid. I shouldn't be afraid of something and I can move past it much faster. And I find it useful to think about that fear and be like, why am I feeling that? Really digging into it. Because often it, it, it'll come from something deep in the past, you know, some childhood trauma or, or some deep part of our personality. So the next thing I want to hit on is this concept of exploring the opposite and curiosity. This has been incredibly important as we scale out our management team. It's like making this something that we bring up over and over and over. How could the opposite be true? How did we come up with that? Where did it come from? So again, this came from Matt and ultimately the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. CLG. CLG. And it's the second commitment is living a life of curiosity, realizing whether you're above or below the line and being able to see the opposite, explore the opposite. And in a lot of places, a lot of places through life, a lot of companies, people are committed to being right. They want, they want to be right more than they want to find the truth. Why do you think that is? I think it's about self-preservation. It's a defense mechanism. It's fear. It's, again, yeah, it's fear. They, they want to be right. They want to be seen to be right. And then when you hold on to being right so, so tightly, it's the opposite of being curious. It can shield you from alternative explanations and curiosity. And it blinds you. It blinds you. And, and the most successful companies in the world, they're, they're truth-seeking companies. They, they see reality clearer than other companies. And so we wanted to embrace this. We wanted to em embrace exploring the opposite and uh, curiosity. So how do you instill a curious nature and how do you keep people from defending what they believe to be right? Or are there like mental models or things other companies can use here? Well, the first part of this is self-awareness. It's context rather than content. So when you are in a debate with someone, the first thing to ask yourself is, where am I? Am I above the line, which is open and curious and 
wanting to explore the opposite and find new ideas? Or am I below the line? Am I defensive? Am I angry? Am I committed to being right? So we've mentioned this above below the line a couple of times now. Can we take a pause and fully define it? It's um, a framework that the Conscious Leadership Group, they've described. And it's just a useful tool for self-awareness. You know, there's no judgment involved. If you're below the line or above the line, you know, there's no judgment. If You can be defensive and angry, but the first step is to understand that's the position that you're in. That's even become a thing at Clearbit where people, when they are frustrated or upset, will sometimes be like, this is a very below the line thought. Yes. So the, the key thing is self-awareness. And sometimes when I will look around a room and I'm feeling below the line, I can see indications that I think other people are feeling below the line because their body posture, what, what have you. Yeah, I, I'm like, guys, let's take a second. Let's pause. And what we'll do is then we'll, we'll exercise. We'll let's like move around the room and do some... Creative joint play. Creative joint play. Just like random movements just to get the blood flowing again. Because we want to get out of that, that lizard brain of anger and fairness. So these are some tactics to take that pause, to pay attention to body language, know if you are or above or below the line. Are there any other frameworks people can use? So I love uh, Byron Katie's work. It's called The Work. And so she was in a 10-year-long depression, and she came out of it with this life-changing realization. that, and I, and I quote her here, I discovered that when I believed my thoughts, I suffered, but that when I didn't believe them, I didn't suffer. And that this is true for every human being. Freedom is as simple as that. I found that suffering is optional. I found the joy within me has never disappeared, not for a single moment. That joy is in everyone, always. So that's the key thing. When you believe your thoughts, you suffer. So that is a lot to unpack. What does it mean to believe or not believe your thoughts? Well, usually when I am frustrated about the world, essentially what I'm frustrated is the world is not how I think it should be. And really, all of that is my own problem. And the belief the world should be different is the part that's causing me suffering. That kind of goes back to that taking full responsibility. There's another, another book that uh, has more recently made it into our rounds, but um, Untethered Soul, which talks a lot about separating yourself from the voice in your head, so the thoughts in your head. That's an interesting idea. We all have this voice in our head, this narrator. And you'll notice if you listen to it, it's kind of the worst. <laughs> it's paranoid, it's delusional, uh, it's aggressive. When you're in, the, in the, having a shower, just thinking thoughts to yourself, you can get into crazy arguments with people. Yeah, I think the interesting thing was this observation that if you can observe and see, uh, if you know, your, you know the voice in your head is a separate entity, if you can identify that, then you know that it's not you. That voice is not you. The fact that you can observe it means it's not you, which is a really interesting idea. And so what I've found is you have to learn how to quieten that voice. So some ways are through meditation. For me, I uh, have humor. So when I notice my voice is in my internal monologue is going in some crazy direction, I'll just look at it and smile and just think, you know, laugh at how ridiculous it is. Nothing matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nihilism, I'm into it. So we've gone into some of these more 
soft and fluid concepts that were really important at Clearbit. Was anyone on the team, specifically the leadership team, kind of skeptical about bringing this in and doing creative joint play during a meeting? It was a tough sell, but it wasn't that tough sell. I remember when I first read the book, The 15 Commitments, and I handed it to you, and you read it twice. Yeah, it was an important book for me. And then we got the whole leadership team to read it, and then ultimately we got the whole company to read it. And I don't think the leadership team was really bought in until we actually got the group around uh, for a day. I think what was most interesting from my perspective was using that to create really deep vulnerability with that group and really deep trust. The things that we shared during that day with each other were things we'd never shared before, even though we'd spent four years together and been on countless trips together. It was very moving because I felt like I knew everything about this group of people. But what was shared that day was 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 very moving because I realized actually some some aspects of these people I just don't know at all. Right. Yeah, everyone everyone has something deeper. Lastly, I want to talk about gratitude and gratitude rituals and why gratitude matters. CLG Conscious Leadership introduced me to some of this a little bit in more depth. I'd love to hear from you about what gratitude means in your life. So I'll talk about why I started practicing gratitude. So I've noticed that whenever I have goals or things I want to acquire or buy, as soon as I obtain those things, I feel a little emptiness inside, and then I think about the next thing that I want. And this phenomenon is called hedionic adaptation. And this is the idea that people return to a set level of happiness regardless of what happens to them. And so in other words, as you acquire more, earn additional things, achieve higher goals, your expectations, they rise in tandem. And so, ago, these things result in no permanent gain in happiness. So you might be asking yourself, is it possible to be happy? Should I set these goals for myself knowing that they won't actually make me happy? And it's kind of a depressing prospect, but there is an answer, and I think that answer is gratitude. How is gratitude the answer? Well, it's very simple practice. Essentially, every morning, I will look in the mirror and I have a little prompt there that says gratitude on a little post-it. And I will look in the mirror and I will say five things that I'm grateful for. And I try to keep them relevant to that week and, and specific. And I find that when I do that, it, it changes my brain. It, it, uh, if you do that over a couple of weeks, you'll notice a, a shift in your, in your happiness levels. Because you, you start to really appreciate what you have. For me, the ritual is not in the shower, but when I first wake up, before, I, before I'm allowed to touch my phone, I have to think of three people that I'm grateful for. Another thing I found really interesting about that is if people start making a regular appearance, letting them know has been like a really powerful thing. Yeah. Telling people that you love them is amazing. So I guess, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for you, Matt. Um, yeah. You've been in my life the last five years, pretty much, one and a half years. We've seen each other almost every day. And we've been on this incredible journey together that none of us anticipated when we, st we started out. We kind of thought maybe we're building this little lifestyle business and we didn't have any of these tools. Right. We weren't seeing therapists. We weren't practicing any of this stuff. And by building this company, we have grown so much. It's been an incredible tool for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing I'm most grateful about Clearbit period is being exposed to this growth curve and having the privilege to be part of a group of people that are so focused on each other's self-growth. 
And an output of that is this book, this podcast, this whole uh, effort around making sure that Clearbit has the best management possible and that we can share that with the world. This podcast is being recorded at StudioPod SF. For more information, go to studiopodsf.com. Thank you so much for listening.